Welcome to the ESPR podcast Inside Conflict with Moritz Ehrmann. So welcome once again to this second episode of ESPR's uh, podcast Inside Conflict, focusing on uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, we are here now in our third session with uh, uh, Dr. Carlo Aldorandi, uh, Jeff Sol, and uh, Ofer Salzberg. Uh, welcome once again. Um, in this third uh, segment, uh, we're going to look at the international uh, dimension of uh, the current setup in uh, Israel uh, and the Israeli-Palestinian conf uh, Israeli conflict uh, 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 in general as well. Um, after, of course, having discussed uh, the very interesting and yet very complicated uh, setup of the current Israeli government, Uh, and what uh, would that mean uh, for the question of integrating more diverse uh, worldviews, uh, including religious uh, identities, into the into peacemaking efforts around the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict? Um, so perhaps um, now, looking from an American perspective, um, at the impact um, of exclusion or inclusion of uh, religion uh, regarding U.S. policies towards uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Jeff, what would you think about this uh, interesting question? Well, uh, Carlo insightfully observed uh, earlier that <clears throat> this conflict has, you know, extra-regional <laughs> significance, uh, geopolitical significance, and that this isn't only about politics, as people in the West tend to understand that term. Uh, it's also about religion and, and, and diverse meaning-making systems. Um, and this is true in the United States uh, as, as well. This, uh, this conflict and the Uh, Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa Mosque complex that we were speaking about is significant to uh, diverse communities in the U.S., including the Christian evangelical community or segments of it. Um, uh, and, and that broad community has had uh, an important influence, obviously, on U.S. politics uh, over the last several decades. Uh, Things are very fluid in the U.S. right now. The, uh, we have a relatively new administration. By some accounts, it's beginning to falter. Uh, we, uh, we have midterm elections coming up and a sort of new congressional map that, is, uh, that, that people are predicting is going to potentially give Republicans control of the House. Uh, so... Uh, so the evangelical community that arguably had a, a sort of larger voice and influence on the past administration uh, may soon have, uh, have renewed influence. But I think it's also important to recognize that that community is changing in the U.S. Uh, youth uh, are, uh, ha have a different relationship to the site and this conflict, uh, this issue, than uh, perhaps their elders have had. And the Jewish community in the, in the U.S. is changing as well. Same, similar uh, generational changes. So 
I, I think, like we were saying about the conflict itself and the new administration in Israel, uh, it's sort of too early to tell where all this is headed, and I think the same can be said about uh, the U.S. context uh, in this regard. There, there, uh, there's a lot of dislocation and change, and it's a little too early to know exactly what that means, in my view. Uh, yeah, building on Jeff, uh, uh, I, I studied quite closely the development within uh, evangelical Christianity. And uh, over at least uh, three administrations, the Bush administration, and the Obama administration, and the Trump administration. So you see changes, substantial changes. So the evangelical community, for religious reasons, attached to eschatology and the prophetic role of Israel, uh, you know, promoted uh, hugely um, gave political support usually to the state of Israel during the Bush administration and then the aftermath of 9-11 and then it went more or less dormant during the Obama years to become an, again very relevant during the Trump administration but now as Jeff highlighted there is a new development amongst young American evangelicals that become even more became more sensitive towards the the calls for justice and equality from the Palestinian communities. And it's a, it's a big uh, development, huge development, almost unexpected, and it is difficult to explain it. it is, uh, is it related to theology? Is it related to cultural, social changes? Is it a generational revolt against the generation of their fathers? But this can be capitalized upon. But in order to do so, you really have to become aware of what, what is the theology of American evangelicals and uh, how it can change to have room of flexibility. So it can be an interesting development, I think. Yeah. Um, offer anything anything to add sort of uh, on what then uh, all of these so developments in, inside of the evangelical uh, movement in the U.S., uh, but also sort of reflecting the current uh, scenario that we find ourselves in uh, in, in the U.S., um, sort of what, what might this mean for uh, U.S.-Israel uh, relations? Both societies are increasingly polarized. And uh, this is one of the reasons that worldviews are increasingly salient in them. In the U.S., to put it very simplistically, we see a stronger um, thrust also shaped by social justice theory um, among more secular constituencies. Uh, we see sort of more traditional perspectives within the Democratic and Republican parties that are perhaps somewhat more uh, guided by interests uh, than uh, in explicit theology. And we see uh, U.S. evangelicals with all of these varieties that uh, Jeff and uh, Carlo underlined. And um, because of this polarization, there is a difficulty for members, uh, for people who, who, who in a way uh, adhere to these different worldviews to support the same policies. They compete with each other. Uh, this, uh, what we are seeing, of course, uh, in the last uh, decade at least, is some degree of unraveling, therefore, of bipartisan policies uh, in the U.S. in general and also towards Israel. Um, and uh, this creates a much more complicated political relationships between the two countries, on the one hand, and between Americans and Palestinians, on the other hand. Um, a relationship with a foreign stakeholder is uh, more and more painted as belonging to a specific constituency affiliated with certain positions. Um, one of the most interesting things that the Biden administration has done in this respect was uh, its decision to not to continue 
with um, the Abraham Accords, uh, a clear uh, fruit of uh, the Trump administration, for better and worse, but really to, to persist with this, to deliver on promises that the Trump administration has made to the UAE, to Morocco in particular, which many Democrats found very controversial, and nevertheless to continue to do this in order to produce, at least in effect, some kind of bipartisan policies. Otherwise, one can witness a, such a high degree of oscillation that there is no political stability, and the very fact that there is such polarization within the U.S. could therefore exacerbate other conflicts. Um, what uh, the current Israeli government is trying to do um, is to, in a way, uh, restore the capacity to work with both political parties in the U.S. simultaneously, uh, secure support from both of them. Um, and the PLO is trying to now repair relations with the U.S. in a way that also will uh, endure future uh, change of administration, so that if they manage to repair relations with a, a democratic administration, it will also continue if there is later a Republican one. So uh, really, I think the most, uh, the, the deepest dynamic from an identity point of view is how this identity-related polarization does not um, uh, jeopardize any kind of uh, long-lasting policies. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And uh, so you, meant, you mentioned another important uh, topic, of course. Uh, so the Abraham of uh, Accords, which of course continue to, to exist also under this uh, administration, U.S. administration, as you have uh, mentioned. And I mean, an interesting question in relation to that uh, might be um, sort of what kind of um, effect might uh, the inclusion uh, of, of an Arab-Israeli party uh, in the current Israeli government um, have, uh, I mean, on the countries of the, of the Abraham Accords, who all have different sort of varying degrees of how they see cooperation uh, uh, with Israel. Um, what, might it, what might this mean for this whole, uh, in itself, very complicated uh, setup? I think I don't dare say anything with Arthur in the room. He's a major specialist <laughs> on this. Please, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just all saw in the news uh, this week, as we record this, um, la rather last week, a trip of the head of, um, of Ram, of this Arab-Palestinian party, to the palace in Amman uh, for a meeting with the king of Jordan. Um, and of course, Ram being from having its root in the Muslim Brotherhood, which yes. is something also interesting to mention in that regard, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So everyone in the region saw uh, the King of Jordan deciding to welcome the head of a party that is uh, at least uh, drawing ins inspiration from the Muslim Brotherhood in the palace for a public meeting in order to discuss issues that uh, are not only domestic Israeli, otherwise you would not probably meet him. Um, so I think that uh, we are seeing that uh, Ram is gaining some degree of regional legitimacy. Uh, this poses questions also both for signatories of the Abraham Accords, Arab signatories, if it is the UAE, Morocco, and so on. Some of them are avowedly uh, reluctant to support any element in the Muslim Brotherhood, some of them less. We saw Morocco, for instance, hosting Ismail Ania, head of Hamas, um, in Morocco just a few months ago. Um, and um, and opponents of the Abraham Accords um, using this in order to delegitimize the agreements, in order to delegitimize Israel, claiming that any affiliation with the Muslim Brotherhood, in fact, means that uh, this is an illegitimate camp. Um, so, so there is a politicization of this matter. I think more significantly, uh, people are watching what can, how, how, how pragmatic 
can you be when you draw inspiration from a theology shaped by the Muslim Brotherhood? What does it mean that this party decided to not only be part of the Israeli parliament, but the Israeli government? Uh, is it something that is going to advance Palestinian interests, Islamic interests? Is it going to be something in which they cater only to their own narrow interests in a way that sort of betrays others? There are a lot of accusations of betrayal, of treason against them. Um, and um, I'm afraid that this is something that is uh, too soon to say anything wise about. But I think that um, it's really a test case uh, that can have uh, historic ramifications. And from that point of view, it deserves close attention uh, to analyze it from the prism of um, analyzing the Muslim Brotherhood uh, movement in general and what uh, different evolutions within it have led to, to contrast it with the experience of Morsi in Egypt, of the Nahada in Tunis, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, and really see which of these paths have led to what kind of achievements. Hugely interesting perspective. Thank you so much. Um, Jeff, anything to add? No, not really. I mean, to, to bring this back to the U.S. context, I would just say one last thing. I'd really underscore uh, something that Ofer and Carlo have each said about this uh, this sort of uh, generational shift in the U.S., and I would I would also emphasize that it's not just within the uh, the evangelical Christian community, but also in the Jewish uh, communities within the U.S. And this uh, this increased emphasis on sort of social justice, and uh, there's a way in which. Um, youth perspectives within the Christian and Jewish communities in the U.S. either is perhaps becoming less polarized or perhaps repolarized in a new direction. I think it's uh, it's too early to to tell, but this is a super significant uh, development, and we'll see what it means for U.S. policy towards uh, the region and the conflict uh, in the coming years. Thank you so much for this uh, really, really rich and interesting uh, discussion, uh, Carlo, Ofer, and uh, and Jeff. And um, yeah, this concludes our, our episode on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. See you next time. Subscribe to our podcast or visit the website insideconflict.com. For more information about the work of the ASPR, visit aspr.ac.at. Until next time.